Uh, some of you have been with us long enough to know that I'm somewhat of an emotional guy. Um, and some of you have been with us longer and you know that that was a, an understatement. Um, and there are times when um, there's a sensitivity to the, the working of the Spirit uh, and I just, I feel it. And I hope that's true of, of you, uh, that you've been gifted with any sort of discernment to know when the Spirit's working. And in this morning's passage, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and last week's passage was difficult in different ways, and so it was very intellectual. And though I didn't intend this, just now I'm realizing this week's message um, is very emotional in a sense. Uh, it's still intellectual. It's still words that have to be processed. But my hope is that it will drop down into something more inside of us. Uh, there would be a way in which the Spirit of God resounds in us, it, uh, that we feel the ripple effect of His work in our lives. And that's the idea behind the series. It's saturated with the gospel. They would work its way out into all of our lives. And in all of life, we would worship Jesus. And, and that is, uh, prob- there's probably no better way to observe that than, than looking at the Lord's Supper. And that's the end of this chapter 11, is a focus on this Lord's Supper and our examination of ourselves and how we um, must remember the work of Jesus. And so I'm going to read through this passage, verse 17 of chapter 11, all the way to the end of the chapter. And similar to last week, we're going to work through it slowly and um, I just want there to be this, the foundation I laid just now, that there's this thought that there's something beyond these words. There's something beyond these elements, the, the symbols here, uh, and, it, and it changes us. All right? Verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. So that's, that's directly contrary to the start of this chapter where he was like, I praise you for this activity. He's already saying, okay, now listen. So that's the only time I'm going to stop. This time we're going to read through it. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you, be, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. 
For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instruction about the other matters when I come. All right. So there's certainly some things here to unpack, some things to understand. There's some things I'm eager to get to because it's like, what does that mean? You probably felt that too. All right. I'm excited about it. Uh, but there's also just the sweetness that draws it all, that pulls it all together. There's this resounding theme in there. There's Paul referencing back to something and calling us to something. And so I think it's necessary for us to examine this Lord's Supper because there's a way we could do it wrong. And there's a way that if you do it wrong, more to the point, we don't have communion with the Lord, we're not unified together, and we destroy the community of the church, and you could even destroy yourself. So it seems important because there's some consequences for the mission of the church otherwise. So, like we need to always, let's go to the Lord and ask for his guidance in this. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I know that it gives life. I know that it is truth. I pray that you would let that be more than knowledge. Let it not be that we need this, uh, this evidence and we try to bank all our faith on the knowledge that we have. But I pray that you would give us understanding, that your spirit would work and we would understand your word. That we'd apply it to life. Lord, I thank you for the sweetness of your presence. I pray that we would rest in Christ as we seek to, to fellowship today with one another and enjoy good food. As we study your word and, and examine ourselves, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, as we sing songs, let it all be praise to our King. Let it be sweet in your ears. Lord, unify us as a body. Let us, let us, as one body, go forth on this mission to see Christ exalted in the lives of many, that you would be worshipped as king. Saturate our lives with truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Verse 17. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. So they're coming together. We talked last week. We have this, this new focus of Paul for the next few chapters. He's, he's addressing the gathering of God's people. He's wanting there to be unity in this gathering of God's people. And so this goes into that same thought. It's under that same heading. Without unity, there's a problem. So though they're gathering together, there's not unity so they're not gathering for the better, they're gathering for the worse. Verse 18, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. All right, Paul is starting with this new subject, this Lord's Supper subject, in order to address unity from a different aspect. Uh, and the basic issues in Corinth have existed for this entire letter. He's been writing these three basic issues. There's this cultural elitism. So there's this, this social 
superiority that's fictitious. It's not even a real superiority. They just feel superior. So there's social snobbery, I guess is a better word. They're, they're pretentious about their social status. That's problem one. There's also this emphasis on personal freedom at the expense of others. So they want to practice their freedoms in the gospel that they're just now learning and getting an understanding about. And it's causing their brothers and sisters to stumble. And it's causing tension within the church. And there's divisions creating around those personal freedoms. And then there's these assumptions of wisdom and understanding based on knowledge. So they know a lot and they think because they know a lot, they're, they're wise and they have all understanding and they, they, they're equating knowledge with gospel belief and it's just not the same thing. So all throughout this letter, we see a Paul addressing these three things in different ways, but those three things are causing the divisions in the church. Everything seems to revolve around these categories in this whole letter because these individuals in Corinth are professing Christ but not seeing gospel saturation in life. So it's not affecting their behavior. It's just staying in their head. And that's very common in our culture. And so here we see their collective love feast, this agape meal uh, that's meant to unite them, has turned into a man-centered meal. And he's angry about it. This rights, abilities, statutes, and, uh, and, and this status and culture have superseded love and sacrifice and unity to create this healthy body. And Paul is, is upset. So these divisions exist, he says. They, these divisions first mentioned in chapter 1 and then in chapter 3, uh, but they're present and assumed throughout the entire, entire letter. And he even says that to some degree he, he understands it. These factions exist, and to some degree they should, and it's natural. Uh, but, but how do we respond when division exists? When we are in disagreement, how do we respond to our brothers and sisters is, is the question. And then what do we remember that helps us respond rightly? That's, that's where he's leading them. Uh, and this word factions uh, can be translated heresies. In fact, the Greek word is where we get the word heresy. And so though it's socioeconomic, there's certainly a theological component. There's some underlying theological dis- disagreement. And, and it helps me, I think, to consider uh, in our culture uh, where justice is a theological issue, it can easily be divided into different d- disagreeing camps. For example... Democrats, Republicans, right? Both claim to care about justice, but it manifests itself in unique ways. So whereas one group may care more about the justice of an unborn child or, or the justice of uh, people caught up in, in slave trafficking or the justice of, let's say, marriage is this and let's hold to this truth, uh, the other side may be more concerned with racial divisions and Immigration and, and these both, both sides are saying we care about justice, but it looks different, and so there's divisions. So let me be clear, we are united in Christ, not in these divisions. And so, believe it or not, there are God-fearing, Jesus-loving, people-loving Democrats who are Christians. And there are God-fearing, people-loving, Jesus-loving Republicans who are moral deists. I'm just kidding, Christians. Right? I had to strike a nerve just to get you with me. And we are united in Christ. Yet, it is possible for us to belong to the same church. Democrat, Republican, as our example, we can belong to the same local body of believers and live this life on mission to the glory of our King. And apparently, they're not able to do that in Corinth. So we have that up on them, right? 
Hope you sense the sarcasm. And Paul is not happy about it. But there are some whose behavior rightly flows from their belief of the gospel and they're seeking unity. And so he says, when these factions do exist in verse 19, there are some who are proved. There are some who measure up. There are some who live rightly and you can see who they are. You can recognize it because that's how Christ would respond. And then he describes some specific issues starting in verse 20. When you come together, then it is not to eat the Lord's Supper because of the divisions. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. You almost want to insert a, oh, like, got dropped, mic drop. They didn't have mics, but you get it. You're not eating the Lord's Supper. You get together and you eat your own supper. That's a great play on words. It needs appreciation. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. There's strong language here. That's why in our translation we add exclamation point. There's strong language here. He's angry. He's indignant about this happening in the church in Corinth. And so we're about to hear an explanation of what the Lord's Supper is. And we just heard he addressed the Lord's Supper. This is actually the only time in the New Testament it's called the Lord's Supper. But he's talking about what we we also call Holy Communion, right? Because it's this set-apart communion, this unity with the community and with God. This communion with Christ who unites us. And we also hear it called the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word meaning grateful or to thank. So there's gratitude involved for what Christ has done. And we should approach the Lord's Supper with gratitude in our hearts, seeking the unity of the church and the community with God. And it's apparently not happening in the Corinthian church. And in their culture and in the early church, it was the Lord's Supper was a part of this all-out meal, like, the, like a full-out meal was had in celebration. They called it the love feast. Now, at least then, it probably also happened in the home church gatherings, but at least in these big gatherings, they had the Lord's Supper every time they were able to get together along with a feast. And so culturally, why he's so angry is because the divisions that are happening are primarily among the rich and the poor. And so the, the poor and the slave class, they don't have anything to offer these meals. They can't bring anything to the potluck because they don't have anything. But the rich people are putting this on and there's some sense of obligation to the poor people to submit to the rich people so that they can have the food for themselves first because, you know, it's their food, not the church's food. And so Paul's angry that this is happening and he's like, why don't you just eat at home? Eat at home, get full so when you bring food, you can let the poor eat. That's how we're caring for one another. That's how we're fellowshipping. And, and not only is there this, this socioeconomic divide, but there's also a sense in which there's people who are belated to getting there. So the language used here in some translations is, is more like you're eating before they even get here. You're not even letting them have time to get here to enjoy the fellowship that we're having. And so he's, he's addressing all these things systematically, trying to get us somewhere. But his point is you're not even eating the Lord's Supper, so stop calling that. You're eating your own supper. Yeah. And there's even people among you who are stuffing themselves, gluttony. And there's even people among you who are getting drunk at these gatherings, somehow on grape juice. I don't understand that. (laughs) Among these obvious issues here, Paul is most upset about the disunity, the lack of thanksgiving. 
and, and the very thing that's supposed to unite us. Somehow the holy sacrifice of Christ is observed in a way that is all about self-indulgence and self-interest. And so in our context, just to try and provide some, some application, in our context, if we don't even, I don't think anyone here is starving and going without food. It's possible, but I don't know of it. In fact, I know of ways in which we have helped one another in these examples of, of low finances. I know ways which people have helped purchase vehicles and provided meals. And I know people who have helped buy computers and make sure people are getting their tuition paid. I know of ways in which we cared for one another physically. And I'm grateful to belong to a, a body who really loves one another like family in that way. But there are some ways in which I think spiritually we may have some who are going hungry because others are stuffing themselves and we care so much about the intellectual side of things and knowing right theology and doctrine, which is so important, but not if it's just staying up here. We don't use it to, to edify and encourage the church. And so there's some spiritual hunger among us. And rather than seeking to care for one another and providing food for the potluck, we have full spiritual bellies. We get drunk on doctrine. And we should use that, and we could use that to care for one another and further develop the unity of the church. And in a broader sense, if we think beyond the crossing church, uh, there are some in our city who are hungry. Believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who are going without food, without bills paid. And there is some sense of responsibility we have to care for our brothers and sisters because we don't have a church of Monroe, Right? There are many churches in Monroe, but we are united in Christ all, all the same. Rather, rather, we hoard our money, not saying us specifically, but there, I know of churches that hoard money and people and resources so that their kingdom will grow. And it, it breaks my heart that there has to be this business mindset, this sense of competition between brothers and sisters when there are people all around us dying and going to hell and starving. And of course... It requires a bit of nuance, but we often say, well, because of our theological differences, because of our theological factions, then we're, we're excused. We're allowed to divide ourselves. And I say nuance because there is some sense in which heresy needs to be called what it is, but we are certainly united in Christ. And it's my hope that this church could lead in uniting the churches in our area, whatever their denomination to see unity in Christ and call out false doctrines, yes, but to the glory of God, not in our high and mighty, we know better than you, arrogance. So we don't have time to get into that, but just something to think on. Back to this shared meal in, in Corinth. It's meant to be this model to display Christ to the watching world to display Christ. Yet in Corinth, it's representing the opposite. Paul is expressing strong rebuke because these privileged social elites have de developed these factions, intentionally or unintentionally. They've developed factions and they're behaving in such a way that totally alienates certain people who belong to Christ and they're fracturing the community. And so there's no communion here. This self-sacrificial precedent that Christ has set in the last meal he had with his disciples is not being followed. So then Paul takes us there, starting in verse 23. 
For I, I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you on the night when he was betrayed. So he's inviting us to go with him. So let's go with him to the night Christ was betrayed in the upper room at John Mark's house where the disciples gathered with Jesus for the Passover meal. The Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we are not Catholic in the capital C sense. And so we understand the Roman Catholic Church believes in, in something called transubstantiation, that it's, it becomes the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. I don't believe we have any reason to go there, even though he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Certainly for Jewish people, that would be too extreme, even though he's done some extreme things. Cannibalism is certainly off the table, and they don't go anywhere near dead things. It, it, it's beyond what they could even comprehend. So certainly he's not saying this is actually my flesh and actually my blood, but these are some important symbols here that we, we dove into back when we went through the book of Mark, which is podcastable, if that's a word. So you can go back. We're not going to have time today to get deep into the, the meanings of the symbol because I, I believe this passage leads us in a different direction. Uh, but these symbols are important and we will, we will give some overview of them. But for our case and for their case, Paul is leading us to verse 26. For as often as you, get, as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a meal to be repeated again and again. And churches throughout history have used this very passage, this model of taking this meal together. Whereas last week's passage was rarely preached, this one is commonly preached when partaking in the Lord's Supper in order to draw out these symbols, in order to draw out the means and the mode, and to show we're doing this because believers throughout history have done this for the purpose of gathering together to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, Paul wasn't there in the upper room when Jesus did this. So he's saying, I'm passing this on to you as it's been passed to me. Perhaps he learned this from Peter, or, or maybe the risen Christ taught him. And we don't see that in Scripture, but it's possible. Certainly, the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write these words. So he has this truth, this understanding of what the Lord's Supper is for, how it should be rightly taken, and he's passing it on to all believers. And the church has sought to follow it ever since. But to offer an overview... We see a picture here in the upper room, this experience with Jesus. I really hope your, your imagination is at least strong enough to feel this moment with Jesus, having lived a life with his, his disciples and modeled for them what it looks like to belong to the kingdom of God. He's bringing them to this moment that's no doubt full of, of emotion because he's about to be crucified. And so he's before them. He's washing their feet. He's telling them of when the Spirit will come and empower them. And he's leading them in this meal, this Passover meal. In fact, he's hosting the meal. And he's also the meal. He is the Passover lamb. And he's the sign of the covenant. He's renewing the covenant. And he will be the keeper of that covenant because we will fail again and again and again. This, these new symbols he's presenting, the bread and the wine, will continue to be a sign of this new covenant for God's people. And now for the Jews... That wasn't the case. The Mosaic law was supposed to be something that's upheld with permanence. It doesn't go away. We're going we're gonna to stay in that law, and we're going to follow it to the very end. 
Because in their minds, there was some sense of obedience leading to salvation when that was never the case. It was always grace-based. And Jeremiah does an excellent job. If you've not read Jeremiah, please do. It's an excellent job of reminding people this faith-repentance nature of God's covenant is about him giving us faith and us repenting and turning back to him again and again. Only we're unable to do that without Jesus. So Jeremiah also points out that you fail at this miserably again and again and again. And because of your failure, what you have earned yourself is condemnation. And Jesus is saying in this meal, no, there will not be condemnation for my people. Those in Christ will not be condemned. He's saying, you have failed. You aren't good enough. You are weak, you are weak in every way. But the Lord has provided a means to fulfill this covenant. And because of that, I create for you a new covenant. So as the church, us, we, the church, are invited into this meal with Jesus. He knew we would need him. He knew we would never have what we need in ourselves or in this world. So he provided the meal. And, And he knew he would have to be the sacrifice. He knew the covenant would have to be renewed again and again. And so he would keep that covenant again and again. He's modeled that for us. We need a savior. We aren't saved by the meal, just no more than we're saved by the water of baptism. But this symbol of something that is the means of our salvation. And in verse 26, every time we take communion, we proclaim that death. And he is the sacrifice to the world. And to one another, we proclaim our sin is killed in Christ, our Lord. There should be brokenness about this because it is our sin that killed our Lord. And in that proclamation, we also remember this other part, until he comes, as a reminder that there's also great hope. There's reason for joy. There's reason to look forward to the future. Lord, return. We have hope until he does. We will be rescued from sin and death. It will come to an end, and he will return and free us once and for all from the presence of sin in this world. Moreover, we are united with our Father right now. Because of this bread and this wine. So we confess ourselves to be sinners together. We proclaim the gospel to be true together. The gospel that restores us to right fellowship with Jesus is uniting us with one another. Now we can sense Jesus in our midst when we take communion. But we can sense Jesus in our midst every day we're on this mission. Because he says he'll be with us to the very end as we make disciples. So this must be our aim and our thoughts. This must be the the position of your heart when you approach this table. It's all about his kingdom. It's all about his glory. It's all about him being exalted in every way because he is all we need. It's a holy experience and it should be honored as such. And Paul's about to make that really clear. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. So we should not partake in this meal until we have examined ourselves individually and in light of this call to unity and everything we just said about who Christ is supreme in our lives. In one sense, no Christian is worthy of this meal. No one has what it takes No one is good enough, air quotes, to come to this table. But 
Our God is gracious, and our Lord is righteous, and he has clothed us in that righteousness. As he became sin on the cross, we became the righteousness of God. So we may profane and dishonor the one who shed his blood when we partake of this sacrifice if we do so as if the sacrifice itself was insufficient in any way. So that means if you are living a life in habitual sin without repentance and you are going again and again and again to seek water in an empty well instead of drinking from the life that is Christ, you're missing it. And you're partaking in this meal with the mindset that it's not good enough. It also means that you do not believe the grace of God is sufficient if you are living your life with a sense of behavior modification as if your actions are going to earn you salvation. You're living as if you are your savior. You're filling your belly with spiritual food and taking this meal in an unworthy manner. Now, there is a sense in which as these things are proclaimed, it carries with it the ability to shame us and crush us in our weakness. But it is for this very reason, that very condition of the human heart, that the meal has been provided by Christ. He knew we would never be enough. He knew we would never find what we need in this world. So he provided himself with grace that frees us from the shame that would crush us. He was crushed so that we would not be, though we may be struck down, we're not destroyed. Context here indicates this unworthy manner is not just individual, but it can be narrowed specifically to partaking this meal in a way that disrupts the unity of the believers. So because of individual pride and selfish behavior, which also involves certainly a a right spiritual mindset of of a repentant heart, so we're to examine ourselves not only on an individual basis, but also consider the beef you might have with your brothers and sisters. Consider the factions you may be creating with your behavior. Consider the disunity of the body and a fault and a failure to trust Jesus in our repentance that would unite us specifically as, as, it, come, as it pertains to the disunity of the body is a serious offense. And that's why in verse 29 he says, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, that is the body of the Lord, the body of Christ, which is the unified body of believers as a whole, If you don't recognize the body when you partake in this meal, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. This is how Paul refers to believers who have passed on, because they will awake when Christ returns, so they've fallen asleep. So he's talking about dead people. So many of you are sick and ill and dying because of the partaking of this meal in an unworthy manner. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. The point, with clarity, there's no other way to see this. The point with clarity is that believers who who violate the unity of the body, the church, will suffer or may suffer physical consequences if you aren't repenting in your heart, seeking the unity of the body, in the partaking of communion. To which you may respond, nah, that can't be it. And I would challenge you to have faith to believe God means what he says. Do you see how much the Lord, this is what he's getting at, do you see how much the Lord values unity in his family? 
Do you see how much God sees the need for, demands the need for unity in his family? Apparently, so much so that he's taking people out in order to maintain it. This isn't the first time we've heard such strong language from Paul, not even in this letter. So in chapter 3, verse 17, concerning the divisions of leaders or following different leaders, Paul or Apollos, he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, the the body of Christ, God destroys him. In chapter 5, verse 5, concerning the, the lack of response towards this individual who's caught up in a sexual immorality that's Horrific, so much so that the culture would even see see it as evil. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. So we're talking about a believer. Paul's saying, look, it's better for you to die than to be destroyed by your sin. It's better for you to die than to destroy the unity in the body. I say, Paul, the Lord is saying that. In verse 31, we see there's conditional statement here. So it's understood that if, if then, in a conditional statement, if we had judged ourselves rightly, then we would not be judged. But we have not judged ourselves rightly, so the Lord judges. And that's manifested itself in physical illness and even death. Only this isn't about condemnation because we're talking about the people of God. So there's some need for us to understand that. We're not talking about being condemned here. We're talking about our sanctification. In fact, it's so we won't be condemned, verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So, so here's the deal. As believers, we are no longer, Romans 8, no longer condemned because we're in Christ. There's no condemnation for the believer. We're no longer under the wrath of God. No one who is in Christ has disappointed God, has let him down. He's not frustrated with you because you can't stop sinning. No one will bear the weight of God's wrath if you are in Christ. Because you're righteous because of Christ's righteousness, not because of yours. It's not possible for the believer. However, there's certainly suffering. There's no one who in their right mind could deny suffering and claim that life is all about physical prosperity, wealth, and health. It's rubbish. It's a pile of rubbish. I mean that how Paul would say it. However, there are some consequences for our sinful actions in life. And just the very presence of sin in the world creates suffering for even the believer. And the sins of fellow believers within the body damages the body. And so we suffer. Those who say they love you and you trust them, and then they do things that doesn't look like love, causes suffering. So what I want to address in this passage and in this church is when you feel like life sucks. Sorry if that's an insensitive word, but sometimes you need to use it. Sometimes, there are people in here, sometimes it doesn't seem like God's there at all. And I know this to be true, Because I'm human also. Sometimes you feel very alone, very abandoned, very broken, very hopeless, but you're in Christ. I'm not saying that every time you sin, you get sick and die. Paul's not saying that either. But these physical and emotional consequences of sin in the world, sin in the church, disunity in the body are very real and very present. But never 
Is it out from under the control of our sovereign king? Never is our suffering out of the hands of our loving father. So it should be seen that this loving discipline is from God, whatever form it may come. This is a difficult thing. It's an incredibly difficult thing to grasp. But consider this. If Titus, my three-year-old son, he knows not to play in the road. He can play in the front yard. He can hang out in the driveway with a certain distance from the road. But they're crazy drivers who like to text and go way too fast in a neighborhood whose speed limit's clearly posted. He knows not to play in the road. We've even taken time to explain to him why, though he may not fully comprehend. He knows it. So if I were to walk out into my front yard and see my son doing cartwheels down the middle of the road, first of all, I'm going to be really impressed. I'm not going to tell him that, but I know adults that can't do cartwheels, so that's pretty baller. If I see him doing that, there will be yelling. There will be no sparing of the rod. He will, in at least a moment, get a glimpse of the wrath of God. Now, let me ask you, do you believe in that example that I hate my son? Do you believe that I want him to associate pain with my love? Do you think, even for a second, that I would want him to suffer and that's why I'm disciplining my son? I don't think anyone would hear that story and think, he must hate his son. He won't even let him do cartwheels on the road. It's, it's in fact, quite the opposite. I love my son. I know that he doesn't understand how painful a car is going to be when it hits him. I know he doesn't understand how fragile life is. And because of my love for him, there will be harsh punishment for willful disobedience. Even if he doesn't understand, there will be consequences for his actions. Because of my love, because I'm for his good. So Paul is saying, God may graciously take us on to heaven. If it means the church will remain unified. Now, thankfully, this is also laid out in scripture, very much like I just gave an illustration in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Paul, or an apostle, it was Paul, let's just, it was Paul, okay? There's disagreement about who wrote Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. That that means don't be downcast. Don't be ashamed. Don't be confused by this discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. Verse 8, but if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He does it, he does it for the, our benefit, in verse 10. He does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have, have been trained by it. I don't even need to break that down. It's so plain. The Lord loves you. So seeing the seriousness of our disunity and lack of repentance, back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together, 
to eat, welcome one another. There's so much packed into that. Welcome one another with joy, with excitement to fellowship, with an excitement to be unified in Christ. Welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, all right? So if you're a rich guy bringing food, don't, don't just stuff yourself on the food you brought, leaving people hungry. Eat at home so that when you come, you can be sacrificial. That's what this meal is about. So that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. And apparently there's more to be said here. He doesn't write it out. He says, I'm just going to give you instructions about other matters whenever I come. So there's mystery there, which you have to be okay with. I wish I knew. So the point here, disunity exists where unrepentant sin is left ignored. We need wisdom, we need grace, we need humility to rightly seek the throne of our Father, to rightly see the sacrifice of Christ when we gather, and that's what we celebrate. We sacrifice for one another to the glory of God. It's all about Jesus, but this is only possible because of Jesus. So let's bring back this this means of taking the Lord's Supper and remember him. When we gather, we're remembering the cross of Christ. We must remember who our God is, the God of the Bible, not the God made up by man. What does the Bible say about our Lord, the one who created everything out of nothing, something we cannot even comprehend, okay? There was a big bang, and it was God saying, let it be, right? Everything came out of nothing. No one else has an explanation for it, and that's because this is the way it happened. Everything. We have a God, a creator who created everything from nothing with his words, right? He put stars in the universe light years away from us that are billions of times larger than our planet. This is our God, right? Let's grasp as much as we can his greatness. Let's be in awe of this God we worship, the one who, because he is creator of all things, has sovereign control over every particle, every molecule, every atom, every subatomic particle is within his sovereign control. He controls it all. There's not a thing that happens in the entire universe that he's unaware of. This is our God. He's big. Let's be in awe of him. Let's leave every gathering in awe of God because of who he is. You guys know the stories in the Bible are true stories, right? This is a story of a God who is powerful beyond what anyone could imagine. No one makes this stuff up. In fact, everything we could make up is based on who he is. Because that's as extreme and as big as it can possibly get. There's not a story in history or in the world that's more meaningful or more amazing than the story of our God. Let's be in awe of our God. Think about it. The rain that fell when Noah was building the ark and burst from the ground to flood the earth. God sent that. He killed people with that flood and he preserved people in that flood. The plagues that came into Egypt, he destroyed things. He destroyed people with those plagues and he protected his people under the blood of the lamb. That's where this Passover meal comes from. He, this God, has control over all all of it. So he also split the sea and gave dry ground for his people out of Egypt. And he sent the storms and he caused the illness and the sickness and the death. Though we can argue about whether he passively did it or actively did it, it does not matter because he's God sovereign over all and he certainly could have stopped it. So we have to wrestle with these things when we think about what's outside of our control, but certainly 
Our God is a big God, control over all things. So where's your faith? Do we put it in stuff or knowledge or reason, or do we put it in the king of all things? And we get this picture all throughout Scripture. That's why I also pointed out the death during the flood and the death in Egypt. And even for the people of God who were not only enslaved to Egypt, but also later on enslaved again to their enemies. We get this picture throughout history of this God who's hard to get our heads around. Of this God who judges and pours out wrath as a right, just God does. And who protects and preserves his people as a loving father does. It's always for our good. And I don't know what you're dealing with this morning or how difficult your life is or has been, but I know who our Lord is. And if we want to bring, we say it old school, we say it Old Testament, if we want to bring this into the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. So we have a Lord who can silence storms with his words. We have a Lord who can cast out demons and they obey him. We have a Lord who has power to give sight to the blind and healing to the sick and food to the hungry and life to the dead. We have a Lord who is king of creation and everything in creation obeys him. So maybe we can make it through whatever we're dealing with. Maybe our situation isn't as bad as it may seem if we would just remember who our Lord is. So let me also remind you of who we are in light of this. Because we are the ones deserving death in the flood. We are the ones every bit as wicked as Egypt and as Babylon. We are rebellious Israel, wandering in, eg in exile and enslaved in exile. We are the ones who are sick in need of healing. We are the ones who are hungry in need of food. And we are the ones dead in need of life. We are sinners who return again and again to our sin like a dog to vomit. We are sinners who think that our righteous deeds are more than filthy rags. This is the narrative of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy, has saved us from being children of wrath. God has wrapped us in the righteousness of his only begotten Son because he loves us. And this is laid out beautifully in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. All of us. All creation. All people fall short of his glory. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice. So this word, atoning sacrifice, can be a propitiation. So this wrath-absorbing sacrifice and an expiation this carrying away from us our sin this is pointing to old testament sacrificial system he absorbs the wrath of god and he takes away our sin from us and on the cross he became sin so that we be we could become righteous so in his blood received through faith which is a gift of god coming not through our our works or the works of any man but coming by god's grace to us we have faith through hearing his word to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. We're talking Passover. This connects us to this story throughout history that the saints of old believed and the saints of future will believe. And we here believe God passes over our sins because his wrath is poured out on Christ. The sins committed by all of us. And we return to again and again those shortcomings that you have, the habitual sins that you have, you can repent, you can go to him because he has provided the sacrifice. 
God presented him, Jesus, his only son, the innocent one, the only innocent one. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the ones who, the one who has faith in Jesus. He would be righteous. He would be just. He would be right to condemn us, to pour out his wrath upon us. But he is made glorious in that Jesus absorbed the wrath. And he now can declare us, those who have faith in Christ, as righteous. He is just and he is the justifier. How? The cross. We must remember the cross. On the cross, love and justice meets. It's the single most sacred and shocking event in human history for that reason. That the Son of God would give up his life. We are so wicked that we need Christ to die for us. Yet, we are so incredibly loved by our Father that he would send his only Son to die for us. The wrath of God fully satisfied in it. The debt fully paid. Our sins totally carried off. They no longer belong to us. They're not seen in the sight of our Father. We're, we're seen as righteous because we've been justified by our justifier. That is what we remember. So I wonder this morning, do we remember it again and again so that God is glorified and we are united in this truth of the gospel and our lives are saturated with this gospel truth and all the world can see Christ unites us. Christ is glorified among us. Disciples of Christ are created out of that because it's all about him. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you have loved us in such a way that you would provide a way. Though there may seem like there's no way sometimes, it seems like there's no hope sometimes. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this meal that we are going to partake in today to celebrate that sacrifice, to remember his body broken and his blood poured out, to see that there is reason for us to be in awe of you. I pray that you would be celebrated as we celebrate not the works of men, but the sacrifice of Christ, and that we would be so motivated to sacrifice for one another and fellowship with one another and seek unity in the body, repenting of sin and worshiping you in all of life. In Jesus' name, amen.
God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must 